This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Malenkov, Nessa, Emperor Kofiev, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist Block, Roy Cohn, Wemperon, Toscanini. Ah, oh, Toscanini. Ah, oh, no, no, Nini. The maestro. Oh. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world. The ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready to start some fires? I am so ready for El Fuego. (laughs) We are getting all hot and toasty with a fellow named Arturo Toscanini. He was a conductor. He captured the imagination, the hearts and other nether regions of uh, fans and lovers. Uh, And I don't really know that much more about him other than Charles Ives, who was a modernist composer of the mid-century called him Toscanini because he was a little bitchy about him. I think there was a case of Toscanini being so popular that people started to feel like he was dominating the scene undeservedly. So I don't so he know. Was, he was a superstar conductor. Superstar conductor who even knew that there could be such a thing. Yeah. And Katie, when I have watched him in action, I found myself looking at his little upturned moustache and his rakish headgear and thinking he is quite the insouciant gentleman. I think that he had a certain flair. Certainly there were a a good handful, a couple of handfuls of excited lady opera singers who enjoyed his charms and were happy to sing his praises. Um, So, yeah, there was talent, there was flair, and there was a certain Italian uh, prowliness. And uh, I think we've come, (laughs) between the two of us, we've come to the end of our knowledge on Toscanini, which is why it is time to introduce a man who's written not one, not two, not three, but four books on the man, uh, plus innumerable articles, uh, exhibition catalogs. Uh, He is the total Toscanini expert. He is Harvey Sachs. Welcome, Harvey. Thank you. Good to be with you. So people were captivated by Arturo Toscanini, and in particular, his players were devoted to him. What was his special charisma? Well, you know, it was a combination of uh, elements. I mean, Toscanini had such extraordinary talents. He had a photographic memory, he had an extraordinary ear. He insisted on the highest standards he could achieve in any particular situation. And so um, he developed a reputation as a very demanding, but also extraordinarily gifted uh, performer. A lot of people who uh, don't know a lot about classical music don't understand exactly what it is that a conductor does. They see this guy at a concert standing up in front of the orchestra and what's going on? He's not the one or she's not the one who's making the music. The music is coming out of the instruments that the players are playing. Well, the first misconception is that the conductor's work is mostly right there at the concert. In fact, the conductor's work is mostly in rehearsal. And that's when the whole performance, the whole interpretation is put together in the rehearsals. 
Harvey, he seems to have had a spectacular debut as a conductor. So he grew up what, as a, playing the cello and then he's on tour in his late teens and almost by accident becomes a superstar overnight. Yeah, um, I wouldn't quite say a superstar, but he, when he was 19, a year after he graduated from the conservatory in his hometown of Parma in northern Italy, you know, he needed work and musicians were not well paid. He came from a very poor family. He joined this itinerant Italian opera company that was going off to South America to, uh, to do a tour. And the conductor was a Brazilian quit at the last moment. And Toscanini, under pressure to save the company from disaster, uh, got up on the podium and conducted the entire opera from memory. And the success was so great that they asked him to take over the rest of the tour. So he conducted 11 or 12 operas entirely by heart. I love the fact that musicians who play for him rhapsodize about him. Like uh, people have said things like that baton was a Stradivarius in his hand. It sang. Or they talk about his hands being miraculously clear. Or that that stick was our heartbeat. I mean, it almost seems like he was this, he was conducting, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he was a god to them. Well, you know, he was a very inspirational uh, conductor. One of the reasons why orchestras loved him was that he didn't talk a lot during rehearsals, a very simple fact, but there are conductors who, you know, talk about the birds and the bees <laughs> and, you know, the philosophy behind this phrase and that phrase. Well, Toscanini, you got in there. On the other hand, he insisted on Excellent playing from the start. I remember talking to a former concertmaster of the Toronto Symphony, violinist who had joined the uh, NBC Symphony, Toscanini's last orchestra after the Second World War. And uh, I said, what was it like at the first rehearsal? He said, I almost fainted because the intensity was so great and you were expected to already have learned every note of your part. So he demanded the most of the players, and he could lose his temper, and did lose his temper frequently in a way that today would not be tolerated. You know, they all felt that he was, first of all, as hard on himself as he was on others. Also that, you know, he wasn't doing this for his own glory. He was doing this because he believed that this was great music and it had to be performed as well as possible. So he goes back to Italy, Harvey, and he is in charge of operas at La Scala. If Katie and I were sitting in the audience in the 1920s and we're watching Toscanini conduct a big opera, what are we seeing from him? Paint a picture of Toscanini on the rostrum for us. La Scala, until Toscanini's time, did not have an orchestra pit. Most Italian opera houses didn't have orchestra pits. The orchestra pit he insisted on having built at La Scala so that, you know, the sound wasn't going to drown out, the sound of the orchestra wouldn't drown out the singers in works that required big orchestra sound. And so what you would have seen of Toscanini at La Scala is not much if you were in the audience because he would have been 
down in the pit. The focus was on the stage. So Toscanini is at La Scala in the 20s, and it's the beginning of fascism and Mussolini. And he becomes Mr. Integrity. He takes a very strong stand against fascism. However, is it true that he ran as a fascist parliamentary candidate in Milan in 1919? Yeah, except that it wasn't really the fascist party at that point. So during the First World War, he was very supportive of the Italian army. As you may know, Italy was allied with Britain and France. And at the end of the war, although Italy had been on the winning side, uh, there was tremendous social and political unrest in the country. The, the, the national debt was unbelievable. 600,000 Italian soldiers had been killed during the war. Um, soldiers came back to find themselves unemployed. And so there was this former socialist journalist named Benito Mussolini who had a, an almost Bolshevik-like platform it was a very left-wing platform at the time, and Toscanini supported that uh, and even allowed his name to be put on the slate of candidates, even though they knew from the start that this new party could not win. Mussolini wasn't interested in this or that political philosophy. I mean, he was interested, but he didn't care. He was interested in power. And so when he saw that he couldn't beat the Italian Socialist Party at its own game, he veered from the extreme left to the extreme right. And that's when Toscanini uh, immediately left the party. And it escalates this, Harvey, as well, doesn't it? So Toscanini refuses to conduct the fascist anthem at La Scala. Mussolini, a man who likes a grudge, then has Toscanini's phone tapped his passport's confiscated. There's a quote from Toscanini, and he says, if I were capable of killing a man, I'd kill Mussolini, which in my mind, Katie, I can see him going up to Mussolini in his black shirt and just sort of hitting him with this conductor's baton hugely ineffectively. (laughs) No, I can see him scowling with his black, beady stare and uh, screaming at him in full Toscanini fashion and flattening him that way. But uh, yeah, he he uh, really had power, Toscanini. I mean, that's surprising to me, Harvey, that he uh, was able to throw his weight around with somebody as fearsome as Mussolini. Well, you know, <clears throat> I always say if Tuscan, if this had been in Nazi Germany or or in Stalin's uh, Soviet Union, they would have done him in. I mean, they would have killed him, no question about it. But uh, yes, he was in danger. Uh, you know, there were people, uh, one of Mussolini's chief henchmen, Roberto Farinacci, wanted to have uh, Toscanini done in. Mussolini, don't forget, was by training and prof- early profession, a journalist. He was interested in image. You know, it's hard to believe this today in the current state of classical music in the world, but in Toscanini's day, uh, he was a national figure. So uh, nothing actually happened to him. He was given a lot of hassle. You know, he, he had his passport taken away twice. But he, he said, uh, he made a statement to the uh, 
Russian-American pianist uh, Gabrilovich, uh, who who was married to Mark Twain's daughter, by the way, and she's the one who wrote this down, that uh, they came to see him after the he was beaten by the fascists in 31, and he said to them, they can kill me if they want, but until they kill me, I will say what I believe. So he was very fearless. He was very fear- fearless. Ooh, Tom, if you don't mind, I need a moment. So it's just as well. It's time for a commercial break. Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. I'm a hunter. It's what I do. He's called KC. Our rules of engagement are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. He's an American vigilante. And there is one of the biggest men I've ever seen. And he's got a knife in his hand. He rescues kidnapped children. There's no feeling in the world like putting a child back in the arms of its parents. By any means necessary. Well, it's ugly. You want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? He scares me. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. And he might scare you. About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that, don't you? Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. Once the U.S. entered World War II, Toscanini conducted various benefit concerts for the war effort. And one that made a big splash was his version of Verdi's Hymn of the Nations. It was a kind of we are the world classical style. Um, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, he was asked by the Office of War Information to uh, participate in a film. I should add that Toscanini had been approached by Hollywood directors for years uh, offering huge sums of money to appear in movies, just even just conducting something. And he would always say, no, I'm not a, an actor. I, I'm only a conductor. Um, but when he was asked to do this, he agreed to do it. Uh, it was a half-hour film that just sh- shows him conducting, and there's a 15-minute long Hymn of the Nations, which Verdi had written for the exposition in London in 1862 to thank Britain and France for their support for the Italian reunification movement. It combines uh, God Save the Queen um, and the Marseillaise and the Italian national anthem in the piece. Toscanini wrote a bridge passage at the end and added the Russian, the Socialist International for the Soviet Union and the Star-Spangled Banner for the United States. And it ends with that. Yeah, it is quite poignant. And uh, the whole idea that if you're on the wrong side of history, your tune, your theme tune is not going to make the cut and you're not going to be in that little melange of melodies. But something that caught my ear is the fact that during the post-war Red Scare, (laughs) the U.S. government apparently very crudely censored it and just cut the international out of the film. Like, oh, uh, remember when we liked the Reds? Uh, 
they're now pinko commies and we're not interested in them anymore. So let's just get rid of them. So it was a, a little clumsy, was it not? Absurd, an absurdity during the McCarthy period. It was the, they cut that one minute of of music. You can you can uh, find it on YouTube in both versions, with and without <laughs> the, the Socialist International. Depending on uh, what your politics are, uh, you don't have to have any feathers ruffled. Yeah, apparently it was lost and then rediscovered in Alaska. I didn't know that. I I don't. Th- I mean, I have or had a thirty-five uh, millimeter film. You know, a copy of the original film that has the international still in it. So it was obviously made before they made the the cuts. He spends quite a lot of his time in America, spends a lot of time in New York. And then he seems to enjoy himself, Harvey, with some of the people he works with. I'm thinking about Geraldine Farrar. Now, she's a singer. She's an opera singer. Katie, we've got some pictures of her in front of us, and we'll put some of these on our social media feeds. She strikes me as an opera hottie. Uh, She definitely has a gleam in her eye, as well as a song in her heart, Tom, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, he was very much, on the one hand, a family man, devoted to his his family. Um, On the other hand, he was your sort of Latin lover type, uh, very much so, who had numerous, numerous affairs. And yes, Geraldine Farrar, he had an affair with her, and she at one point, you know, said either or. You leave your family and, uh, you know, we become an item <laughs> or, or it's over. And for him, that was never, a, there was never a question of leaving the family. The uh, good side of that story is that he was uh, so upset about what was happening was that he left the met earlier than anticipated that spring to go back to Italy. And he took a different ship than the one he had originally been scheduled to take. The one he had been scheduled to take was the Lusitania, which was ah. torpedoed on its last voyage. So Geraldine inadvertently saved his life by giving him the classic mistress ultimatum. Wow. So Harvey, you have come across a huge trove of letters, many of them erotic letters to his ladies. And you wrote a book about that and obviously incorporated the letters in your more recent book. But there are just oodles of passionate love letters. I mean, this guy was raw like sushi. Um, I noted that he was particularly frenzied by the pianist Ada Menardi. He wrote, and I quote, I'm like a madman. I could commit a crime when, oh, when, Will we be able to possess each other completely, clinging together, deep inside each other, our mouths gasping, united while awaiting the supreme voluptuousness at the same moment? When? When? Harvey, this is a question I often ask myself. (laughs) Um, I like that he's just like out there with the, you know, he's he's not uh, he's not backwards and coming forwards. (laughs) That's right. He. uh he said what he thought about most things, and that was one of them. Um, you know, Valfredo Toscanini, his grandson, said to me once, you know, if I, had been a, if I were as famous as my grandfather, I would never put in writing something like that. 
But, you know, that's the thing about his grandfather was he had no sense of fear. I mean, there is also the fact that in those days, journalists did not report that sort of thing, even if they knew about it. So uh, everybody knew that Franklin Roosevelt had a mistress, but it was never in the papers. But he was, uh, yes, he, as uh, his grandson said, he cast his nets wide as far as the, the uh, possibility of sexual conquests was concerned. I, I've seen uh, clips on YouTube where various very lovely elderly opera singers definitely get a little twinkle <laughs> in their eye when they think about uh, how flirtatious he was. Um, young female singers did it on him and found him, quote, beautiful. So he definitely had a total charisma, but oh my gosh, his poor wife, Carla. I mean, how did she put up with it? I mean, I think in her younger years, it was terribly upsetting to her that this, when this started going on, especially he had an affair with a, a soprano named uh, Rosina Storchio, and they actually had a child. And uh, she undoubtedly found out about this. So, but on the other hand, she gradually came to understand that the opera world was like the circus world. There was a tremendous amount of bed hopping going on, and she just eventually came to put up with it. Uh, she didn't like it. She would befriend some of his ex-girlfriends, and they would kind of gang up on him from time to time. <laughs> a bit of bitching behind his back, uh, yeah. Uh, and apparently uh, at his 70th birthday party, which she arranged for him, she invited a lot of his exes <laughs> to his 70th birthday party. Ooh, ouch. So, so that was uh, kind of... Uh, not so subtle revenge. Yeah, right? I mean that—that's like a, a dark version of this is your life. <laughs> these are your girlfriends. I'm I'm frantically putting all these girlfriends in Google Images, and Casey, I'm thinking he has a type, but I'm also thinking that the very early stages of photography mean that every single person looks the same. <laughs> yeah, the uh, we're looking at a, an array of images of uh, very sweet, round-faced young women, hair parted in the middle, looking very wistfully off to one side. I mean, a, a lot of them are, are performers and opera singers, so they're, they're in their roles. Right, and those were staged photos mostly, but he said no a lot. Uh, there's a conversation one of the tapes that were made unbeknownst to him in his old age by his son. And this woman says to him, do you, did you ever say no, maestro? And he says, I said no many times. <laughs> and in fact, that's true. We know that now because there were a lot of women, even high-placed society ladies in England and elsewhere who were after him and to whom he said no. I can imagine that line, Katie, coming out at his 70th birthday where his wife has arranged the parade of ex-lovers and as the sort of 14th or 15th identical opera singer walks past, he looks at his wife and goes, I did say no a lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> Credit where credit's due. How does the ordinary man or woman in the street, whether it's in Italy or America, how do they hear Toscanini? Do you have to go and see a live performance or is there any way of hearing him any other way? Well, that's interesting because from the 1930s on, Toscanini was heard on the radio a lot. And he 
uh, became a kind of popular figure in a sense. This was at a time when, you know, the entertainment available on the radio was limited. There was no television yet. There were movies, of course, but radio was something you had in your home. Something like 7% of the entire population of the United States heard his weekly Philharmonic broadcasts. A figure like that is just about unthinkable today in the classical music world, unfortunately. He was known as an anti-fascist, and I think that that added to his fame. But also there was the whole aura, this man who was you know, known for this photographic memory and for his intensity and his intransigence and his terrible temper flare-ups. And, and he was a, a public figure in that sense. I want to get into the temper flare-ups, Harvey. There are some very compelling videos that can be found on YouTube of him losing his shiz, Tom. Have you... Uh, have you enjoyed those? Katie, I found these amazing because you and I will both be familiar with a program called Eurotrash. Yes, growing up as we did in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And as you recall, Eurotrash uh, used to do interviews with people in French or German and then rather than give them a French or German accent, would do the complete opposite, would give them a very strong accent from this country. So I'm going to attempt to do that, Katie, <laughs> with one of Toscanini's rants, which is entitled on YouTube, Toscanini destroys a bass section. Right, let's see how this goes, because I can see the words on the screen. Right, here we go. Oi, double basses, follow me. Short notes, short notes. Come on, come on. Always the wooden carts. They are not instruments. Oh, for the... For the holy mother. Oh, for the love of God. Double bases. Ball breakers. You're always late. <laughs> well, encouraging words? I think not. I did hear, Harvey, that uh, they, they didn't take it personally because they felt that it wasn't that he was bothered by mistakes. He was just bothered by the fact that they weren't fully committed. Yes. Concentration. Concentration was the thing for him. You had to be attentive, you know, all the time. I actually talked about this with Riccardo Muti, the great Italian conductor of our day. Uh, and I, I said to him, you know, what I've noticed in particular, what would set off his anger was when the bass line, whether it was the double basses or the low instruments in the brass section or whatever, when they would get behind and Toscanini wanted those bass notes. They're, those are like the pillars of the orchestra. If they got behind, it would. It was like showing the red flag to the bull. You know, he charged, and so <laughs> they took the brunt of a lot of his his attacks. This would happen. There would be these explosions, and then three seconds later, he would be saying, you know, my dear, caro, caro. He had this mercurial temperament, and he was known to be extremely generous to musicians off the stage. And so uh, one Italian conductor, Maestro Gavazzini, told, told me that in the 20s, when he had been a student in Milan, you could see towards the end of the month when payday was coming and a lot of the musicians had already used up their 
monthly salaries, you'd see a line of them at Toscanini's house uh, asking for loans, in quotation marks, and Toscanini had told his wife, if they need money, you just give them what they need. Oh, that's wonderful. So he had uh, an amazing second act, or maybe it's even a third act. I don't know. There's a lot going on in Arturo Toscanini's life. When he was the first conductor of the newly formed NBC Symphony Orchestra, which was for, it was a radio orchestra, and then it made the transition to television. Can you tell us all about that? Yes. uh, When he was in his late 60s, He was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. The Philharmonic would do four concerts a week, generally, and those were preceded by five rehearsals. It was a a lot of hard slogging. And he didn't want to work that much anymore. He had already basically given up opera conducting. And so he gave his farewell concert with the New York Philharmonic in 1936, and everybody thought, well, we'll never see him in America again. He went back to Italy to basically retire. And then David Sarnoff, who was the chairman of the board of of RCA and uh, its subsidiary, NBC, came up with the idea of creating a real virtuoso orchestra for him that would perform once a week, one concert on the air. And uh, Toscanini, who by then had turned 70, said yes. He figured he'd do maybe one season, maybe even three seasons. But of course, it went on for 17 years. He conducted until he was 87 years old and uh, with, with great success. Audiences heard these broadcasts across North America and then by shortwave around the world. Now, Harvey, we often find ourselves on this podcast asking why Billy Joel would include a certain person, place or thing in his song. I understand that until this point where you are speaking to Katie and I, you are totally unfamiliar with Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, which to me is a marvellous thing because you're giving us Toscanini and we're giving you Billy Joel. But is it that TV appearances and that sort of run of time where I guess he must be the most famous conductor in the world? He's on nationwide television across America. Do you think it's that sort of thing that might have inspired a young pianist like Billy Joel growing up in Long Island and might have lodged Toscanini in his brain? Yes, certainly. Although uh, what I noticed looking at the lyrics of the song is that they fit right into the year 1954 chronologically with other things that were going on. Now, 1954 is when Toscanini conducted his very last concert at the age of 87 with his NBC Symphony. And that made the headlines because people realized, well, you know, this is it. He's he's not able to go on any longer. And so... I mean, Billy Joel was only six years old in 1954. Yours truly was only eight years old at the <laughs> time, and I, I have no memory of it at all. But uh, I think that that's, that could be the, uh, the thing that, that set it off. And what happened to Toscanini during this final concert in 1954? Yes, he had a memory lapse. Um, he simply stopped conducting. And, you know, under most circumstances, orchestras would continue, but they loved him so much they were worried about him. The players were worried about him. 
And so if you listen to the actual uh, recording of the broadcast, you hear there are moments when they're just at sea. It's, it's unbelievable that this great orchestra is, you know, floundering. Oh, Katie, this is heartbreaking for me. This man with this phenomenal photographic memory, the maestro, the great sort of rock and roll superstar of conducting, and then his last performance, it falls apart. That's quite tragic, isn't it? Well, and it's interesting that it really only falls apart for a minute or something, and yet it makes such an impact, uh, not only amongst the musicians playing for him, but I believe as far as the listening audience was concerned, they were hearing this on the radio, they didn't know what was going on because I guess people in the control room panicked. Yeah, well, they just, they, uh, Guido Cantelli, a young conductor whom Toscanini admired, was in the control room. He panicked. And they put on a, a Toscanini recording of a piece that had nothing to do with the piece that was being performed in the broadcast. And they said, you know, technical, uh, whatever. There's been a technical interruption to our broadcast. And for Toscanini, was that a real crisis for him personally? Like, is there any reporting or story about his reaction afterward or any any sort of pronouncement that he made about it? He apparently said to his children, there was a dinner at his home in Riverdale, New York, after the performance. Um, and he apparently said to his children, I, I thought of just walking off the stage, but I thought of you children who were by then all in their 50s. Uh, and uh, I went on. He then, you know, he had bad days and good days, and he he went back to Italy and he thought about conducting Verdi's Falstaff at uh, the the new uh, then under construction Piccola Scala, the new little theater that was being built next to La Scala. But then he had, uh, you know, he had uh, various uh, mini strokes and mini heart attacks, and uh, he realized that he just wasn't up to it. So that was it. The the very last time he conducted, a couple of months after that last concert, there was a record. There were two days of recording sessions to patch up two of the live Verdi opera performances that he had given, Aida and uh, Masked Ball, Balu in Maschera. And it's interesting because the first opera he had heard when he was four years old was Umbalo in Maschera, and the first opera he had conducted was Aida. So it was like bookends to this 68-year-long career. Harvey, you've done a magnificent job of peaking the appetites of Katie and I for Toscanini. Um, if later on today Katie and I are kicking back around the gramophone, record player and we'd like to hear the greatest hits of Toscanini and our listeners feel the same way what performances should they seek out oh my god that's a very difficult question very difficult you know certainly his recordings of Verdi's Otello and Falstaff are classics it's interesting that Toscanini's last few concerts were recorded in a sort of experimental stereophonic sound in 1954. But unfortunately, they weren't very good performances. These were, you know, his last weeks on the podium. So they were never officially released. You can find them, but uh, they're, they're not great performances. I guess I would direct listeners to any of... 
Harvey, your writings, uh, including the most recent book you wrote on Toscanini, which is Toscanini, Musician of Conscience. Can we look forward to another book filled with scurrilous love letters? <laughs> I don't think so. I think I'm Toscanini'd out, and uh, uh, I, I have written books on other subjects as well, and I'm continuing to do that. So, uh, uh, But, of course, as this program indicates, I'm very often uh, asked to talk about him, and it's always a pleasure to do that. Well, thank you so much for bringing the maestro to life for us, Harvey. I can now... Katie, see him in my head, and I can hear him in my ears. And I can feel him as the pianist Ada Minardi would testify, deep inside me. Yes. Well, Katie, that was the maestro. Um, I like the fact that he had a photographic memory and was able to conduct two and a half hour performances without looking at any notes, because that's precisely how we do this podcast. Oh, it, you know, really reminded me of me so much so. <laughs> I've done that thing of developing a severe crush on a dead guy, <laughs> um, which has only been exacerbated by chatting to Harvey about him because I think that he, I don't know, it's just that twinkle, the gusto. I mean, admittedly, in his later years, he did wear his trousers up just underneath his man nipples. <laughs> uh, trousers just kept getting higher and higher. That's where we all end up. That's where, I mean, but there's a lot happening in that gusset is what I can say. Um, so that was fantastic. Next week... I am a little bit mystified because the topic is Dacron, mm. which Could is be a city, a topping, a band. Uh, it turns out it's a fabric. Okay, that's going to test us, Katie. Maybe one of us, even today, has Dacron upon our person. On our person, or maybe even inside. Maybe you know, I am bionic. <laughs> we'll go. That that's going to come out in a future episode. So, I'm willing to put a little bit of money on the fact that I'm partially constructed of Dacron. Well, we will find out more about Dacron next time, Katie. But in the interim, if people would like another podcast to listen to, where should we send them? We should send them to Alan Cummings' shelves. You can join the wonderful actor Alan Cummings as he takes you through the stories of his life through the random objects on his shelves. Yeah, and he's joined by some brilliant friends. So Ian McKellen joins him to talk about a dog collar. Cindy Lauper helps him piece together the story of a pair of leather gloves. And you can find out about Alan's Spice Girls Lunchbox with Jerry Halliwell. <laughs> the stories are very funny, so you can search for Alan Cummings Shelves on your podcast app. And in the meantime, Katie, if people would like a little bit more of We Didn't Start a Fire, they can, of course, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, spread that fire, or perhaps they might fancy becoming an expert guest or know someone who would fit that bill. If they do, if they just want to chat, they can email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? 
I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.